Uh, well, we'll set the, uh, the context for our study today like this. Uh, we're, we're aware that a big part of the, uh, the humanness of who we are is the very present concern we have to regularly understand the why. Uh, so, for example, when we're three years old and our parents tell us to go to bed, what's usually the first uh, response to that question? Why? Well, why in the world would I need to go to bed? I know when I stay up late, you guys have, have come up. I've seen that you and, you and mom have night snacks. I know good things are going to happen. Why, why would I go down to bed right now? They need an answer for the why. Uh, we get a little older and things don't really change. You, you, you have a, a new phase of life, but the same inquiry. You take the, the car into the, into the uh, mechanic and he tells you you're going to need a new timing belt. And, and because he's usually pretty nice about it, right away he explains the why. He knows you wonder. Is it worn out? Is it manufacturer recommendation because you've got 100,000 miles? We, 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 just, we, we go through our lives with a regular uh, need for understanding why certain things are taking place. And uh, as we think about our spiritual lives, as we think about what it means to follow Jesus, uh, this effect of needing to know the why isn't something that stops there, but actually continues into the more serious matters of gospel living for us. In fact, we're not long in our following of Jesus before why questions can begin to come with a, a significant level of seriousness. To, to follow Jesus, being faithful to Him, can leave us often with questions about uh, what we're navigating in our lives. And as we study through the book of Hebrews, we know that there's a fairly specific and even burdensome why question which has been existing in the minds of the first audience of Hebrews as they follow Jesus. And the why question for them is centered on the fact that while these Christian believers have come to know Jesus, they've been following Him, they've understood the gospel historically, at the same time, they're not in a place of rest and reprieve in their life, but instead they're going through a season of significant turmoil. Uh, they find themselves facing social persecution. They find themselves facing the depths of personal temptation. Uh, and a very natural reaction to facing these kinds of pressures, uh, whether we're the first audience of Hebrews or even ourselves as these things come into our lives, a very natural reaction to those kinds of pressures is to ask the why question. In fact, it's probably a question we've asked from time to time in our Christian life. Uh, we, we read the Gospels, and we read about how Jesus calls us to come to Him, and He promises that uh, His burden is easy, His yoke is light. He promises that we'll find rest for our souls. And, and while we do come to Jesus and find that great rest that's there for us, knowing our sins are forgiven because of what He's accomplished on the cross, knowing that our future is secure, uh, just as the Spirit of God is given to us as a guarantee of that reality, while all of that is true, at the same time, rest isn't the total picture in the immediacy of our lives now. We also face, oftentimes, unexpected pressures because we're following Jesus, those pressures can come socially, those pressures can come as a result of, of family dynamics, those pressures can come in the requirements we have in our professional lives. And, and it's these kind of pressures that the first audience of Hebrews was facing, and, and they need categories for understanding why this pressure is existing for them. Uh, so we know in chapter 5, they've, they've had temptations to spiritual laziness. That's a, that's a pressure they probably weren't expecting as they come to Christ in zeal. And all of a sudden, they find that instead of an ongoing zeal in their lives, there's kind of that, uh, that, that, that dull pattern of, of uh, spirituality that starts to infiltrate their thinking. And they wonder, where is, the, where is the zeal gone? Laziness has set in. 
And then not just that, but externally we know about the social pressures they've been facing. Uh, they've had friends put in prison because of, of following Jesus. Chapter 10 tells us that. They've had property seized, public ridicule, all of these things. And then we get to chapter 12 like we are today and then into chapter 13. And we know uh, with, with all of this going on, they additionally are having some struggles with immorality in their, in their own uh, lives as they follow Jesus. So, so while there's a great deal of rest that's to be found in coming to Christ, these Christian believers are being tempted to slide back from Jesus simply because the pressures are very acute in their lives, as we've seen, as, as we've studied throughout this letter. And, and so it's not just this sliding back from Jesus that they're struggling with, but what they're struggling with is, is a why behind this situation. Why are they going through this season of significant hardship? And the preacher to the Hebrews, as we keep seeing all through this book, the preacher to the Hebrews is a good pastor. He knows this congregation is struggling with the why question. We all do at times. And so not only has the preacher of Hebrews been given, uh, giving this congregation a, a huge view of the supremacy of Jesus throughout this letter, which, which helps them battle that temptation of sliding back from Christ. He's given them something of the bigness of who Jesus is, what He's accomplished, the fact that all God's promises reach their climax in Christ. He's given them this truth. And then in addition to that, in verses 3 to 13 of chapter 12, which is what we looked at last time we were studying this chapter, in verses 3 to 13, the preacher's also given these Christians a framework for understanding the immediate purposes behind their present struggles. He's given them this why to accompany the pressure that they're facing as followers of Jesus. And that why is centered on the fact that these believers are being disciplined by the God who loves them. Through these difficult circumstances, whether social persecution or, or internal struggles, personal temptation, through these things, the preacher says, God is actually proving that He loves you as His children because as Proverbs 3 is quoted here in this, in this chapter, it is the loving Father that disciplines His children. So, so instead of these hardships, leaving the believers feeling like God has actually stopped caring about them, actually quite the opposite is true. Whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. The disciplining hand of God in our lives actually proves our status as His children. Remember, this was, this was the same program that Jesus Himself endured in His earthly ministry. The preacher of Hebrews already made that clear back in chapter 5 where he tells us that Jesus in His incarnation as He, as he walked the earth, the supreme Son of God, He learned obedience through what? Through what He suffered, Hebrews 5 verse 8. So, so in all this, a very critical why has been provided for his first audience. They're, they're enduring hardship in their following of Christ, not because God has deserted them, and not only because there are those people who are contrary to Jesus all around them, but in the midst of those circumstances, God is continuing to work to bring them along in what it looks like to live a life of trust and faith in Him. Remember from chapter 10, all of this is coming under that great heading, live by faith. He's calling them to live this life of trust. And He's active in their, in their lives to help them grow in that reality. Which is an extraordinarily helpful and comforting thing to know, and not just for the first audience, but for us as well. Because in our circumstances of pressure, sometimes very extreme pressure as followers of Jesus, uh, we need to know that God isn't active, or isn't absent, but instead, He's actually very active in order to engage in our own growth as His children. Just like a good dad is active in his kids' lives in order to bring them along in the, in the way of wisdom. 
And so we have this wonderful why here. That's that's why uh, these believers are enduring things, and that gives us a framework for our own endurance of times that are particularly pressure-filled, which gives perspective. But but while this is a truth uh, that we need to know and understand cognitively, this reality of God's disciplining hand in our circumstances, along with that, uh, we still very much need help working that out practically. Uh, Because it's one thing to know that God is active for our spiritual benefit as we endure hardships following Jesus. But it's another thing to be able to respond to these circumstances fruitfully, properly. So we have the question, don't we, oftentimes, what does it really look like to respond well to God's disciplining hand in our lives? We understand the, the, the theological truth of it. The question we have now is, how does this work out? What does this look like in working clothes when it comes to being faithful in the context of difficulties? As we know, God's hand is in those things. How does this look for us in a very practical uh, framework? And maybe you've had that question in in the midst of life. You're seeking to follow Jesus. You encounter hardships. Things things can get very heavy. But what does it look like uh, to, to live in the midst of those circumstances, knowing God is active for our good? And that's exactly the question that the preacher now answers in the verses we're going to look at today. So he moves from expounding God's fatherly disciplined involvement in the lives of his people in verses 3 to 13. Now he moves to speaking about how they should respond to this discipline in verses 14 to 17. So so what does it look like to respond to God's disciplining activity in our lives? What does it look like to respond to days of hardship, days when temptations are strong, days when ridicule for following Jesus is regular? How do we respond to hard days knowing that God hasn't left us, but He's actually working on us in the midst of those circumstances? What does it look like to put that response in working clothes? And that's, again, what, what we're going to be helped with here in these verses. So, Uh, You can look at verse 14. We'll start there. Again, 14 to 17 is our section. And if you look at verse 14, we notice that our response to God's discipline in our lives, first of all, involves the pursuit of divine priorities. The pursuit of divine priorities. So verse 14, it reads, Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. So let's think this out a little bit. The first thing we're called to do here is, is engage in this pursuit like the text reads. Uh, the, the, the terminology here, it actually reflects a sense of urgency and intensity that's bigger than, than, than the Greek word we might otherwise have translated uh, seek. Peter likes the word seek in his letters. He uses that a lot. This is a much more intense word, which actually doesn't surprise us given the fact that Hebrews chapter 12 has begun with this exhortation to the marathon race of faith as Christian believers. There's already an urgency. There's already an intensity represented in this passage. And now this this urgency has continued to be underpinned by this call to persist, this pressing on diligently after something. And what these believers are called to pursue is is there in the rest of verse verse 14, they're called to pursue peace and holiness. Peace and holiness. So peace is, is a matter of of relating to others in a harmonious way that doesn't cultivate an environment of strife. That's what peace is. Uh, holiness, well, we know what holiness means. Holiness speaks to the, to the purity that's to attend a person's life who's been saved by Jesus. These, these believers are to pursue peace with everyone, and they're to pursue uh, this quality of purity, without which the text says no one will see the Lord. Holiness Uh, is part of what it means to follow Jesus and enter into that eternal rest that Hebrews has already been speaking about. 
And as we just read this statement, it might have first seemed like the preacher of Hebrews is simply giving us a couple primary Christian characteristics that, uh, that can control our ambition. We need to be pursuing peace and holiness. This can sound almost like a, a very a useful Sunday school generalization as we think about living for Jesus. You know, peace and holiness, just make sure you keep those things at the top of the list. These are good things to pursue, uh, and, so, and so you need to be mindful of them. Uh, it can seem, in a sense, that the preacher's uh, putting those things out there for us to consider in a kind of general way. And, and while it can seem that way, uh, these two big categories in our Christian lives uh, certainly do reflect a regular pattern of living for Jesus. Um, while it can seem like these are two basic generalities of living a life of faith that the preacher is, is throwing out there, what we can understand as we think about this a little bit more closely is that the preacher is actually emphasizing something more profound than, than merely those virtues of of harmony and purity, if we can put it in that way. Because when we look at this passage in the context of all that he's been saying, it becomes clear that the preacher is calling these believers to respond, not, not just broadly and generally with these uh, characteristics in their Christian life, but he's calling them to respond very specifically to God's own priorities, the very same priorities that are compelling the, the loving, divine discipline that these believers are experiencing. And, and we see that if you just look up a little bit in the passage to where, where we studied last time, verses 10 and 11. In verse 10, if you, if you look there, um, what, what do we see? What, well, we see that, that God is actively, lovingly disciplining His children in verse 10 for a reason, so that we can share in His what? Holiness. That's why God's active for discipline with discipline in our lives. Holiness is God's divine prerogative for His children. Okay, verse 11, what is God doing? Well, God's discipline is bringing something else about there, isn't it? Verse 11, God's discipline brings about the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So, so you see, the preacher isn't just grab-bagging a couple top Christian virtues here and telling these believers that, that they may face some hardships in the Christian faith, and, and as they do, it might be good for them just to, just to think a little bit more about holiness and, and, uh, and, uh, and these kind of peace, you know, maybe over their morning cup of coffee, just a couple things to meditate on. He's not, he's not merely saying that. He's telling them that the way we respond to God's instructional and disciplining love in our lives is, is by aligning our own ambitions with what God is prioritizing for our lives in the midst of those things. Why does God discipline us? Verse 10, holiness. Why does God discipline us? Verse 11, peaceful fruit of righteousness. So then what do we pursue when we're in the circumstances of those trials? Well, what should our ambition be? What is our own spirit-wrought prerogative as we're going through seasons of significant difficulty and even confusing turmoil? What ought we be pursuing? Well, ought we not be pursuing what God is working out in us? What does He say? Pursue holiness and peace. Which is important for the first audience of Hebrews to understand on, on a couple levels, and it's important for us too, uh, because we, we just need to know that, that the great ambition of pursuing God's priorities in the midst of hardships we're facing, His prerogatives must be our prerogatives. That's where fruitfulness is going to come. Uh, so there's just that general reality that we need to have clear in our minds. It's very easy to enter into difficult circumstances and have my priorities be very centered on the fact that I would like to be in charge of this whole situation, thank you very much, and I have a very determined outcome. I'd like to see that outcome take place, and if that doesn't take place, then I'm out. Actually, I'm engaging in the bitterness that he's going to speak about here in just a second. I'm out if it doesn't go my way. 
What he's saying, though, instead is we need to step back from all that and realize God is working out something specific in our lives. And we need to align ourselves with that. And not just do we need to align ourselves with that, asking in the midst of this, how can I be pursuing the kind of purity that God has called me to, the kind of, the kind of temperance and harmony that the gospel calls me to. Not just that, uh, here for the first hearers of Hebrews, but we also need to remember that back in chapter 5, we know this audience has become lazy. They become slothful in their faith. And they needed to be reminded, uh, not, not just that the Christian life, like we saw at the beginning of chapter 12, is a marathon race, but they also needed to be reminded that in the midst of these kinds of situations, they need to be actively pursuing, diligently engaged, urgently concerned with the things that God is concerned with in their lives, with the things that God is working out for them in their lives. So we go after what God is calling us to go after, the preacher is saying. It's not that, that we're earning holiness. Well, we understand that as a very important matter. The whole book of Hebrews makes it clear that Jesus Christ is the one who earns purity for us. We just have that all through the book so much so that it's, it's repeated and looked at from so many different angles. In fact, back in chapter 3, verse 1, this is very interesting. Even here where he calls them to pursue holiness, the preacher's already addressed this congregation as holy brothers and sisters. Why is he addressing them with this quality he's now calling them to pursue? Well, because ultimately Christ has purchased that holy standing before us, before the living God of the universe, through his cross. He's purified us. He's cleansed our conscience, as we read in Hebrews. He's made us clean. But with that gift of holy standing comes diligent pursuit that accords with God's priorities of Christ-like growth for us. We are holy. We pursue holiness. Because God has granted this gift of acceptance. And now with our new hearts we desire to live for all these things that align with the goodness and grace of God. There's a Richard Kipling poem called The Glory of the Garden. Which is a great poem. I don't know if you've read it. You can find it online. You can maybe read it for homework this afternoon. Um, but, but one couplet in the poem goes like this. Where, where Kipling is reflecting on, the, uh, on the, the, the cultivated English countryside. People have worked hard to make the English countryside beautiful, and he says this, our England is a garden, and such gardens are not made by singing, oh, how beautiful, and sitting in the shade. So our England is a garden, and such gardens are not made by singing, oh, how beautiful, and sitting in the shade. The beauty of the English countryside comes with, with, with this work, not a mere relaxation and, lay, and laying down. And, and in a sense, that's a big part of what the preacher's saying to this congregation. Christ has made His people holy. He's given us the absolute guarantee of eternal peace. This, this is all of Christ. Hebrews couldn't be clearer about that truth. But the reality of Christ's work doesn't leave us as Christian believers singing, Oh, how beautiful, sing, sitting in the shade. Instead, we respond to the reality of what Jesus has accomplished by making God's redemptive priorities for us our priority. The gospel puts an end to earning, but not to effort. In, in, in hardships, our priority is not, first of all, finding a way out, but our priority is looking for ways to exercise ourselves, which we know accords to God's good work in us. What does it mean for me to be pure? What does it mean for us to be pure? What does it mean for us to be peaceful? After all, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Why are they called sons of God? Because that's what God's, God's like, and sons are like their father. Peacemaking is part of what the gospel uh, in, uh, influences us to pursue, peace and holiness. So, so, so we remember our question, well, what does it look like to respond to the reality of God's fatherly discipline in our lives? Well, it looks like pursuing 
what He's prioritizing for us, namely, peace and holiness. This is, this is a call to action that's here. And while that's a big part of the answer to, to our question in terms of how do we live in, in a practical way based on God's disciplining activity in our lives, well, that's a big answer, a part of the answer to that question. It's not the full answer that the preacher is going to give here. Because if we move now into verse 15, uh, you can look at it, you see that it's not just the pursuit of divine priorities that we're called to here, but it's actually the corporate or, or community or, or congregational pursuit of divine priorities that's emphasized. Do, do, do you see that in the first part of 15? If you look at that, make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God. This, this grace of God element here is a, is a shorthand way of, for the preacher to, to reference all the benefits that are offered to those who are, who are trusting in Christ. And he says, make sure that nobody falls short of this. If, if you want some very exciting news, I can tell you that's a, a circumstantial participle there. Aren't you glad to know these things? But the important thing about knowing about circumstantial participles is that gives us the circumstances under which all this action he's calling to is supposed to take place. What, what, what is the frame of reference that we have? What's the, what's the framework for working out this life that we're called to live in, in, in peace and holiness? What are the circumstances under which that's going to take place for us? Well, it's these circumstances. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God. We notice in the language that's used here that if Christian believers are going to pursue God's fatherly priorities in their lives, this is something that isn't done alone, but instead there's this congregational pursuit that's reflected here. And in fact, the verb translated make sure in the CSB translation, it's that, it's that verb form of the noun translated overseer that we find in places like Paul's letter, which is a synonym for the pastoral office. Overseer, elder, shepherd, all of those, all of those words. This is the, the verb form of that word. In other words, the, the, the preacher's coming to them and he's saying, you all need to engage in the fact that this coming along and, and, and making sure that people are following along in the way of grace and the way of God's good purposes for you, this is a community oversight event. There's a corporate responsibility that's being called for here. So, so it's clear that the preacher's calling this whole assembled church to exercise themselves in this watching over one another as they pursue God's priorities. Those are the circumstances under which this pursuit is going to take place. There's a corporate effort that's being highlighted here. So one uh, ancient Greek commentator on this text, I was going to tell you his name, but I can't pronounce it, so I can spell it for you, but... That doesn't matter. But, but an old Greek commentator on this text who has some very interesting insights, he, he, he describes what's here and, and likens it to, to a large group of travelers going down the road together, and the road is dusty, the road is dangerous, and those kinds of things. And as they go along, the whole group is regularly checking on the rest of the caravan to make sure that nobody's fallen by the wayside. That, that, that's what's in view here, this, this watching over everyone to make sure that they're keeping on in God's way. And you see why this is important, because when it comes to prioritizing things like peace and holiness in the midst of God's discipline in our lives, when it comes to those seasons of hardship in life, what is the very first thing to go? I think I speak for all, at least I'll speak for me when I say that when the pressure is on, the first thing to go is righteous personal perspective. Isn't that the first thing to go? Seeing clearly is out. 
We're struggling. The fog has come in. The confusion is setting on us. We're tired. We're worn out. Things heat up. And on our own, we just stop seeing clearly. We get disoriented. We, we lose our gospel navigation of life when, when we're left there just to think through all of these things on our own. Alone is dangerous. And alone is not God's means of keeping His people in the way of peace and holiness and ultimate rest. Because instead, we're called to be like this caravan as a local church, uh, carrying out this, this life of following Jesus together uh, as, we, as we pursue the, the, uh, the mercies of God. We have this corporate responsibility uh, to one another. So, so it's not just a matter of pursuing God's priorities personally, but the way the preacher is working, out, working this out is we're, we're called to understand that this pursuit is one we're to do congregationally. Okay? God hasn't designed redemption to be a successful isolationist journey. God keeps us in His way of grace. Even, Jason even prayed about this morning, all the different means that God uses uh, to, make, uh, to make a way for His people and show us kindness. God is a God of means, and a means He uses, as we've talked about many times, a means He uses to keep us is the mutual ministry that we exercise to one another in a local church. Which is why things like gathering on Sunday is so critical for us. Obviously, we gather on Sunday for the purpose of worship, for the purpose of, of vertically exalting the God who saved us and made us and maintains us and gave us His Son, all of those things. But we also gather on Sunday morning for those horizontal purposes that we talk about, for encouraging one another, saying to one another, even as we sing, that, that singing involves a horizontal element in which we're encouraging one another with that kind of gospel truth. That's why Sundays are so important, and it's why things like small groups are so important. This is why uh, things like being willing to have those awkward conversations with others out of love is crucial for us as a local church. We need to be able to do these things. This is why it's important to be willing to, to sacrificially give of our time in order to know each other and then extend uh, the kindness and encouragement that we need into each other's lives. This is why other-centered concern is so important when we think about our congregational life together. Why do you think Paul can go through that huge list of gifts in 1 Corinthians and then what does he land on? What does he Love. If you don't have love, none of this matters. Because what do we need if we're going to actually be useful to one another with the things that God has equipped us to use? We need to do that in a loving way, in a way that's sacrificial, in a way that's considering others above ourselves, all of these kinds of things, because we know that it is not something we can handle alone, this whole pursuing Christ business. It's not meant to be an isolationist journey. So, so as we face disciplining circumstances in our life, as, as God brings us along as a good father who doesn't neglect us, but instead he instructs us like good dads do, as we face these things, we do so pursuing God's priorities, holiness and peace, working that out, and we do that not in isolation, but as a congregation. We, we, we do that you know, with the help of one another. And as, as we're weary, I mean, the, the practicality of this is just so, so there for us. As we're weary and need lifting up, uh, we need to be quick to ask for that kind of encouragement. That's a fine thing to do. I need to be encouraged. Call somebody up, text them, say, I need to meet for coffee. I need to be encouraged because I'm really feeling low. And then at the same time, as, as, we're, as we're diligent and, and watching, we're quick to offer up help that's needed. You don't even have to talk about it with the person. If you just notice somebody seems a bit down in the way of faith and maybe they could use a little, a little time together where you can talk about things that, quite frankly, don't seem all that uh, eternally important, but the encouragement of your presence might be something that's critical for their perseverance. And so, and so uh, we, we can think through this. Up through the middle of verse 15 here, we aren't just uh, making God's priorities our own ambition. 
but we're doing so as we watch out for each other, as we look around and take responsibility for our fellow uh, Christian perseverers. So that's up through the middle of 15. And then, um, in the end of, of, uh, of the section here, up through verse 17, uh, the preacher goes on, again, in the practical way that he does here, he goes on to address two specific dangers that can draw us away from pursuing these priorities. Um, so, so he gives two specific dangers that, that we can be particularly watchful in as we, as we care for one another in our pursuit of peace and holiness. And so, and so if you look at the verses there, you do see that, that uh, the, the first danger is that of bitterness. Bitterness. And the rest of verse 15, we have this reference, which actually is a, is a reference to Deuteronomy 29, 19, uh, which, which again, you could read that later if you'd like to, where, where, where Moses is addressing uh, the people of Israel there. And, and, the, and the preacher co-ops that, that uh, speech there from Moses, and he, and he says here, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. So, so again, back in Deuteronomy, Moses is speaking to the people and he's telling them in this, in this context of temptation to idolatry, that's what he's addressing. There's going to be this draw away from trusting in the living God to trusting in things that are not the living God. There's going to be a, a temptation away from the, this path of faith. That's what Moses has been talking about in Deuteronomy 29. And he comes to them and he tells them that they need to be careful not to let a root of bitterness spring up. And, and, then, and then he adds this little bit, Moses does, where he talks about this bitterness causing a person to consider himself exempt, thinking, I will have peace even though I follow my own stubborn heart. So that's, that's the context that the preacher's drawing out. He's expecting his Hebrew readers to understand the fullness of that Deuteronomy context, just like he has as he's quoted all these different passages all throughout the letter. The preacher's addressing this fact that the bitterness toward God's way can come in, and what that bitterness does is it's this kind of the sour percolation in our hearts that causes us to think that we're actually accept, exempt from following in God's good way of life. Like, like uh, we're going through something now, and, and in the midst of that hardship, there's a tendency to develop a, a sort of sour disposition toward God. And in that sour and bitter demeanor, uh, we think that the things God has called most people to certainly won't apply to us, and we can be just fine without those things. After all, this, this just leaves a bad taste in my mouth to go in God's way. In, in these particular circumstances. Maybe in other contexts of suffering, I could be doing the things you're calling me to do. But in the one I'm in right now, none of, none of that truth of God applies to me uh, like you're saying it does. There's that bitterness that comes in. And it's not just a personal bitterness that's there, but in the text you notice, it causes trouble for others too. Just like we don't exist in isolation in our perseverance, we don't exist in isolation in our damage either if we let this kind of thing take hold of our hearts. Because others are affected and they think, well, I've seen them going this way in hardship and quite frankly, it looks a lot more relieving to do that than actually obeying what Jesus calls me to do. So maybe, you know, that gives me a sour taste in my mouth too and off I go in the same direction. There's this, there's this uh, ancillary effect as a result of the, of the unfaithfulness of one spreading to many. And we see that uh, throughout the scriptures and we know, we know how that can work in our hearts and even in a congregation. So, so the preacher comes and he says we need to watch out for this sour taste towards God, good way, God's good way starting to, to rise up in our, in our mouth. And then not just that in terms of a danger, but we also, as verses 16 and 17 make clear, we also need to watch for the danger of immorality and irreverence. In, in fact, it's, it's immorality and irreverence uh, as the 
as we're, as we're told here, that was exemplified in Esau's life, which is interesting. We've been used to some pretty good examples all the way through the Hebrews so far. Now he takes this example of Esau, uh, who ultimately rejected the covenant community of God's people. And he brings up, he brings up that incident between Esau and his brother Jacob, you remember. Uh, and like his reference there, Esau traded his sacred birthright as the firstborn son of Isaac. He traded that sacred inheritance as the older boy for a bowl of stew because he was particularly hungry on that given day. So he made this trade. And and here the preacher describes Esau as immoral and irreverent, which is interesting to have those two things being put together like that. Uh, The the immoral reference, especially just as we reflect on 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 the story of Jacob and Esau, uh, because this word translated immoral is, is, a, is a word that directly references uh, sexual transgression. So, so it strikes us as a little strange since there wasn't exactly a sexual immorality in that situation where Esau traded his inheritance for the bowl of soup. Um, but at the same time, we do remember Esau's life. And the preacher's communicating something unique just about Esau and his general countenance towards the things of the Lord here. Because, uh, because in Esau's life, you remember, as the story goes on, how he took for himself uh, two of the Hittite women for wives. So he took two wives. Do you remember that? And, and in the beginning portions of Genesis especially, one of the main indicators that, that Moses uses as he, as he writes that account, one of the main indicators of a world gone against God is reflected in the way the design of marriage was continually violated. And you have that pop up in a few different ways in, in, in those early chapters of Genesis. Lamech is the first one in Genesis 4. Remember, Lamech was a wicked man, murdered somebody, bragged about it. And Lamech, one of the, the distinguishing characteristics of Lamech was that he had two wives. We've just read how God brought Adam and Eve together as a married couple in the garden. And now, what are we finding? Well, the spinning out of a sinful world after Genesis 3. He has two wives. Genesis 6. Genesis 6, we have that really strange story of the sons of God coming in to the daughters of man. And whatever that means, we do know that the text reflects a violation of God's intentions for the union of one man and one woman. It's part of the reason He judges the world because of that disorder there in the sexual realm. So, so we put all these things together, especially as Genesis emphasizes them with, with immoral and irreverent here in terms of Esau, and recognizing that ultimately both words describe Esau as a man who treated as profane what God had said was sacred. Esau sold the blessing of his dad for a meal, and not only that, but he married women from people who didn't even love the Lord to begin with, and then he took not one but two wives contrary to God's design. Esau, as the commentators make the point, and actually, as is recalled throughout Jewish history's commentary on Esau as an individual, Esau was a sensual man who put immediate physical gratification over sacred realities. So much so that even even though he realized he'd made a stupid mistake, the day of blessing was passed for him, verse 17. Even though Esau went back, begged Isaac for the blessing, the blessing had already been given. In that that sense, the day of salvation, as it were, for him was, was over. It was past. So, so you see the preacher saying that, that if we're going to respond well to God's disciplining engagement in our lives, it's not just this pursuit that we're engaged in, and it's not just this congregational pursuit that we're engaged in, and it's not just bitterness that we need to be careful uh, rising up in our hearts, but there's also this uh, profaning of the sacred and seeing it as something that's plain and quite frankly doesn't matter that much in the economy of my life. Uh, just, like, just like Esau here. So, so, so one pastor from the 18th century, he put it this way. He said, sufferings are apt 
to sour the spirit and sharpen the passions. And he doesn't mean passion in the positive sense, like you go to a work interview and they ask you what your passions are for life. This is passions in the transgression sense. All right? Sufferings are apt to sour the spirit and sharpen the passions. In other words, those things that would draw us away from faithfulness to God and pursue ways that are failing to recognize the sacredness of God's good way. So when we go through these things, we just understand that there are dangers we need to be watching for. And the reason the preacher gives us these dangers is because we're in this gospel business together. We are ministers to one another, seeking to exercise oversight and care for one another as we go along in the way of grace. We need these tools in order to be able to say to one another at times, you know, I've enjoyed conversation with you so much over the years and as we've got to know each other, but it just seems in the context of the last few months maybe, uh, there's kind of a, a flippant attitude toward the holy things of God. There's a flippancy uh, maybe toward, toward morality on a certain level in your life. It just seems like that's going by the wayside and not occupying a primacy of place like it ought to as we follow Jesus. Or, or somebody may come up to, to us and say, and say, you know, I, I, I've always appreciated our time together, but if I could beg your pardon and just make a comment, it, it, it seems that it seems like peace is not particularly marking out your life these days. Even as we've had conversations, it seems like uh, there's a kind of vitriol, a kind of, a kind of caustic simmering that's going on in your heart. And that, you know, that's just concerning for me because, uh, because I want to see you going in the way of Christ, going in the way of rest. And I know the world around us can be so spun out so much of the time, but it seems that you're an, uh, an angry person in a way you used to not be an angry person. And somebody comes along and says those things to us. And what do we respond? How do we respond to that? Well, we have to be very careful, don't we? Very careful how we respond to that, because an easy response is a little more bitterness and a little more anger, right? How dare you speak to me that way as we prove the point they're making to us, right? That's the easy thing to do. It's like your wife coming up and saying, you're angry with me. No, I'm not. Prove it, right? You prove it in the thing. What we need to be able to do is as these conversations come and as we offer them, we need to be able to respond thankfully saying, okay, I see you're doing Hebrews 12 oversight here. I see you're caring for me. I see that you're seeing stuff in my life that is contrary to following Jesus. And while it's kind of painful for me to hear that, and quite frankly, it's a little embarrassing for you to have to talk to me about these things. It doesn't feel very good. At the same time, I recognize that this is an expression of grace you're extending to me, and I need you, and thank you for doing that. This is how we need to be able to respond to these things. Because at the end of the day, when we're responding well to God's disciplining activity in our lives... It looks like pursuing what he prioritizes, and it looks like needing the help of others who come along and keep us in the way of Christ. This is how Jesus has designed his church to function in order that we might be kept as he promises to keep us as our good shepherd. They will know us by our love, Jesus says. We have this engagement with one another that ultimately is Christ's own means for maintaining us in the way of faith. And then so we can be encouraged by this simply because it can become very practical. It's something we need to practice. We need to be careful with. We need to think about how to do it well and winsomely and productively and all of these things. But we just see time and time again, we are our brothers and sisters keepers. We need each other. God has given us to one another as a gift. I need you. You need me. We need each other in these things in order that we can ultimately persevere and finish the race well. And so... Uh, we, we live with this daily realization of Jesus' uh, not only superiority, which keeps us in His way, as Hebrews has said, but we live with this daily dependence upon God as we recognize He gives us His people as the help we need to keep on in His way.
And so we do that. We, we uh, uh, respond to these things, trusting that he'll use his means uh, to bring us to his end. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that it, it comes and it arrests our thinking, it informs our thinking, it renews us. And, and not just that, but then it uh, compels us to be active in ways that reflect your own good purposes. We thank you for it. May it be transformative in our hearts. Uh, we ask that in the name of Christ. Amen.